everybody, welcome to this brand new episode of the Satisfied God Podcast. Let me get, uh, get settled here. Uh, you will hear a little different background, a little echo. I'm in my house, my building where I do the recording, where I have my office is uh, very, very cold. It's actually uh, about two, three degrees outside right now, and this is noon, so it was negative one when I woke up, and... We have around, I don't know, five or six inches of snow and a lot of sunshine today, so some of that will melt away, but uh, I am not a fan of cold or snow. Uh, Ice especially, I just, you know, which I think everybody feels the same, but I hate ice. This has been a pretty decent snow, if there's such a thing. It's been powdery and uh, light and not wet where it makes a mess and puts a lot of strain on power lines and trees so that's been nice and it's not too difficult to get around and so i'm in the house staying warm and my dog and cat are cuddled over in the living room areas so um, i figured to, this would be a good time to uh, do a recording with you and uh, share something with you that's been on my heart it's been the you know, it's been the focus for the last several days for me, and it's been on my mind for a long time. And what I'm going to talk about, as I'm sure you know by the title of this podcast episode, is the phrase from glory to glory. And this is a continuation of the series that I'm doing uh, from time to time called In the Light of the Transition. And the verse that I want to read to you, and we're going to read, basically, by the time we get through with this, we're going to go through the whole chapter uh, 3 of Second Corinthians and into uh, chapter 4. This may take a couple of sessions to do. I'm not sure. I don't want to uh, make this extremely long in one sitting, but you know, the beauty of a podcast is you can cut it on and cut it off and go back to it, but we'll see how that falls out. Let me just read Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, in these lessons and the light of the transition lessons, I'm, I'm endeavoring to examine some areas of scripture that are misunderstood by me. Firstly, first and foremost, there has been a misunderstanding in my heart regarding these verses. And therefore there's been a misapplication and a misappropriation based upon that misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding uh, of these and others that will not be touched on uh, in this particular lesson stems from a direct ignorance concerning the singular intent of the scriptural testimony and how we have in the in Christian theology separated ourselves in so many ways from the primary intent of scripture we can't divorce these things from that but we do not understand 
these scripture in the light of the transition that has occurred in the coming of Christ and the transition that has occurred in the salvation that he brought about and that he is. And what I'm attempting to do, and the Spirit of God has been very faithful in this, uh, to challenge me in these things and, and, sh- and shine a light on, on many of these places so that I can see these things clearly in the light of such a work of God instead of attempting to see them in the light of something else. My predetermined, you know, idea, my doctrinally um, solidified concept with regard to the verse. There's so many ways we do this, but what has brought our souls from the testimonial fragments that pointed to the person of Christ, to the age of fulfillment, that age of fulfillment which bestows to us and causes us to partake of the divine and spiritual perfection of those fragments. We will not just see a house that is built by man's hands that stands as a testimony, but we are now that house that he inhabits and fills with his own fullness. That's what I mean by transition from natural to spiritual, from promises to the person, from shadows to the substance and body that is Christ himself. Those things that pointed to the greater that was coming and the greater now that is present in the soul because Christ is present in the soul. There was a transition. There was a work of God that brought this division between two things, between two ages of time. And people misread and Uh, misquote the verses that we just read entirely outside of the context of their meaning. And this actually hurts us in so many ways. And I'll talk about that in this lesson. But, you know, when I began, it was just this particular verse that I wanted to discuss. And then as I read the context around it, I began, oh my God, this is, you know, the Lord began to shine in so many areas and show me in so many ways what Paul was actually saying. And I have had to repent myself through this particular study, this particular lesson in the very last several days to sit before the Lord and actually repent of being one of those who is who's guilty of the misapplication and misappropriation of these things. Not because I got this particular verse wrong from glory to glory, because that was pretty well an understanding I had, but the way that I had seen it in the light of the context is it was totally wrong. To just begin this, have you ever heard anyone uh, quote these verses, but not quote them, but misquote them by saying, you know, we are going to be changed from glory to glory, to glory, to glory, to glory. And they 
continue to repeat glory to glory to glory as if that is actually there in the scripture or is actually the meaning and intent of the apostle Paul as he pins this letter. And I assure you it's not. And as we get into context, you'll, you'll see that many of you probably already know this. It may be old hat to many of you, but I want you to listen. I think it's going to help some of you. It may anger some of you. Some of you may think I've just fell off the fell off the truck and and am totally lost. But I'm telling you, what I'm going to say in this lesson, if it proceeds for another lesson, whatever, I promise you, this does not take away from the reality of Christ in you or any of that. To me, it adds to the weightiness and sufficiency of that reality. But I have in so many ways taken these verses out of context while, while assuming that I had them in their context and still missing these subtle but beautiful places where the reality is so great. And as I said, I've repented of that and and seeing how these things are actually connected. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of verses. We're going to connect a lot of verses, and and, and I'm assure you this is not a polished presentation at all. This is me uh, working through a more clear perspective while still attempting to formulate the words to describe it. So when, just to begin this, because again, this is the thing when I was beginning these notes, this is the thing I thought that I would actually be focusing most of the time on is this phrase from glory to glory and how people take it from glory to glory to glory and allude in that, in that misuse of those words and reading into the scripture and adding to the scripture, they are alluding to some idea of progression of some uh, ascending to levels of glory by whatever means, whatever methodologies. And while this may seem benign to us and innocent, even, you know, good regarding giving people motivation to progress and to pursue, in the context of the verses before us that surround this particular verse 18 of second Corinthians chapter three. We speaking of me and those who present this gospel, but I'll just say me, I am guilty of throwing an obstacle in the way of the believer and the people who push this as just a motivation to pursue also throw an obstacle in the way. So again, we must understand this on the light in the light of a transition. And this means we must acknowledge Paul is addressing in these verses. We'll read a distinction between two administrations and two groups of people concerning or in reference to these two administrations. 
So what I want to do is let's turn back in chapter 3 to verse, we'll start in verse 4. Again, we'll get into some uh, of the earlier verses too, even a little bit into chapter 2 to help us. But let's begin by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, and we're going to read a few of these verses. So let's read. Uh, And such trust we have through the Christ toward God, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. Again, there's a distinction, not the letter, but the spirit, for the letter doth kill, the spirit doth make alive. Now, again, Just to contextualize that a little bit. This is what's leading up to this. Paul is now beginning to show a distinction between two administrations. The administration of the letter and the administration of spirit. He says here the letter kills. What does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 7, if you look at it uh, in verse verse 9, you read the whole thing and it's showing that uh, basically giving a, a real life example of that in in the life of Paul as a man under the law trying to do what the law actually says and be righteous by it, yet being internally governed by the law of sin and death. Romans 7 verse 9 through 11 says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He was an assuming, uh, he assumed himself as a man who had life by the law. But then he realized the commandment speaks beyond him. And guess what the law did? What the law does and what the law was intended to do. And that is to make sin seem to be exceedingly sinful to show the depth of the imprisonment of the soul of the men that are under that law. And when sin revived, I died, meaning I was exposed as one who is dead in that sin by that commandment. So even though I assumed I had life by that law, I was dead and condemned by it. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death unto me. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. So this is Paul's real life confirmation of what we're reading in 2 Corinthians 3. The letter under which he exerted all of his religious zeal, all of his efforts and energies showed him the state of the death and condemnation in which he actually existed. In the midst of his efforts, there was a power greater than his efforts. There was a power and a governing principle and law that was within him greater than and more powerful than any of his deeds, even deeds according to a law God had given. It doesn't matter. It exposed his state, his condemned condition. It could not provide the life, however, that it demanded. It demanded something, but it demanded something more than man can give it. 
Galatians 3, verse 21. Again, we're going to interject in these verses and just follow along. You can write these down if you want. Galatians chapter 3 says this concerning what we've just spoke about the law killing and not providing the life. The spirit is the one who gives life. The law does not. The law basically demands the fruit of life, but keeps you in a state of death. Why? Because it is a prophecy to men that there is the necessity of another to live. And in that time frame of that testimony, it was a promise and a prophecy that the one who is demanded is coming. He's coming. And what the law keeps you from, separates you from, the division between you and life, you and righteousness, the Spirit of God comes and bestows to the soul what the law demanded but could not provide. And that's what Galatians 3 is speaking of here. Verse 21, the law then is against the promise of God. Let it not be. This is from the Young's Literal. For if a law was given that was able to make alive, listen to that phrase. If a law was given that was able to make alive, truly by law there would have been the righteousness. Do you see how he intertwines righteousness and life? Why? Because righteousness is not merely an attribute that we gain. Righteousness is the very reality of his life. That's his life. That's who he is. That's why Christ of God is made unto us righteousness. Because it is the fruit of his life abiding in the soul. It's the automatic condition of a soul in which he lives. He cannot live in it and it be unrighteous. When he comes in, the nature of that which he inhabits changes. That's why it is a birth, being born of another seed, partaking of another life. So if the law was given that could be able to make you alive or to give life truly then by the law, that was now able to provide the life that it, it, it demanded or demand or, or provide the righteousness it demanded. That law that provides life or is life in its essence would have allowed righteousness to be the condition of those under it. But the writing, the law did shut up the whole. That means mankind as a whole under sin. So that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ may be given to those believing. And before the coming of faith, under law we were kept, shut up to the faith that was about to be revealed. He's speaking of the faith of Abraham here, embodied and personified in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the faith of Abraham was always to. It was to a seed who was coming. Not talking about something abstract. 
It's speaking of the person of Jesus Christ, who is the end of Abraham's faith, who is, this, who is the seed unto whom the promise was made. The promise is fulfilled in the coming of faith. So that the law became our child conductor unto Christ, that by faith we may be declared righteous. How? His life living in you. And the faith having come, no more under a child conductor are we. We're no longer under the law. And I want to consider for a moment the true implications of this. Again, if the law of Moses was capable of making someone alive, conferring to those under it the life it typified and the nature it demanded, then righteousness, meaning in full measure, not just mere actions of righteousness that we assume and 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 always are looking at to try to assess, I mean righteousness in its full, complete, perfect, divine measure. That righteousness would have been legally possessed, rightfully possessed by those who adhere to the law. And that's what Paul will call the administration of death, that which kept men in death, condemned men who were dead, but demanded something that was not possible for the men who were under that state. It condemned them under that state, but it could not do anything to relieve them of it. That was the previous condition. Why? Because those under the law are condemned because those under the law or the law has power over those who are still yet dead in sin are still yet in Adam, who still have that nature, are born of that seed. Now, when we have the distinction here, we are not of that which is of the letter, we are that which is of the spirit. He's speaking of the spiritual reality that lay under this is from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I love this commentary. I love this particular phrase. The spiritual holiness and substance which lay under the old law, which the new covenant brings to light and makes manifest. So when he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, he is saying, we now have not the letter that, that just speaks of it, points to it, and demands it without being able to bestow it. We're speaking now of the coming and presence of the very spiritual substance which lays underneath that old law as its originating power and substance. The only reason it was allowed to exist was because there was this greater thing, this more perfect thing, this divine reality laying under it, girding it, holding it, so that it could shine a light and give a picture and a sketch outline of what was about to come, of what God was actually after. And I like that phrase, the holiness and spiritual substance that lays under the law. And there's a very accurate imagery presented there because it helps understand the need and the work of the transition 
from the old to the new, from the natural to the spiritual, from the previous administration that had visibility and tangibility, which can cause many to hold to it as something real and genuine. Why? Because I can see it, touch it, taste it. And that's translated over to what we define as the Christian life and what we define as holy and real and genuine spirituality. The tangibility, the visibility of it. That's why men are so obsessed with the ritual of it. The observances, the outward. If nothing more than just our works, our efforts, the rituals we involve ourselves in, the validating, and I could say the validating exhilaration that we feel. That seems to speak to its genuineness, right? How real it is? No, it doesn't. In fact, when you read the word truth, when Jesus speaks, I'll just use this one for an example. When Jesus speaks, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the word there is Aletheia 225, if you want to look up in Strong's. And here's the Vines Expository Dictionary definition. Truth is the reality that lies at the basis of something that appears, the manifested and the veritable essence of a matter. So when Jesus comes in, and this is him defining himself and defining the truth, and this is why there's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's no such thing as subjective truth. Not when you're speaking of divine truth. We don't, there's no such thing. Man does not have the, uh, the right to claim a truth that belongs to him. There is one truth. I am the truth. The definite article is there because there's only one. I am the way, the life, the door, the bread. So when he's describing himself, he's describing the very nature of the truth. And he's saying he is the manifested nature. The fact that he was the unseen reality that was the originating basis of all the things that appeared at that time. What things? The priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, all of those things that had a tangibility and seemingly genuineness, there was a greater genuine. There was the genuine behind it. The genuine, the real, was that which was unseen, which is what the Hebrew, let me turn there real quick, the Hebrew letter speaks of in chapter, when we begin chapter 11 of Hebrews, he says this, faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. That points us right back to what we just read in uh, Galatians chapter 3 where there was this hoped for faith that was coming. The faith of Abraham would be fulfilled. The faith of all the fathers, all of those who had a promise and had prophecies concerning the coming of salvation, the Messiah, the kingdom. Now, faith. Now that that faith has come, that faith is the substance of things that were hoped for under that system, under that age of testimony, and is the evidence of things 
that could not be seen. For by it, faith, the elders obtained a good report. Then verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. What does that mean? The thing, the, the things that are seen, speaking of all of the things of the old. Now we could take it to the natural creation, that's fine. Natural creation, according to the scripture, is also a testimony of the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? But in in the truth and the light and the context of the Hebrew letter, he's speaking of those things which had appearance, which were created to give testimony in a tangible way to a spiritual reality that was to come. And we understand by faith that the things which appear to us the things that are seen by us were not made by other tangible and seeable things. Their basis for existence, their origin of their construct was unseen. It was spirit. In other words, they exist tangibly before us as a testimony because there was a truth the truth that lies behind their existence and gives them validity to temporarily expound in a testimonial way of their nature and prophesy their coming to fulfill that picture, that script, that outline. So when we're saying tangibility and that's what's real, what I can see, what I can touch. When Jesus says he's the truth, when we call talk about the truth of God, we're speaking of that unseen. That was the underlying weightiness, the divine reality that gave credence and ability for these other things to even exist. And we're going to see that as we go, but... So he can, he can be called the better thing. Everything he brings in, in his coming and his kingdom and his greater priesthood, it's all called in the Hebrew letter better. Why? It's better because he and all that his coming brought about sets forth the end goal. It manifests the gravity and burden of the scripture and the purpose that God laid forth in those scripture through ages and ages of testimony. He comes and says, I am. I am the truth of this. I am the basis of all of it. You worship in this temple, the greater than the temple is here. You read about Solomon and of his glory and of his wisdom the greater than Solomon is here. Why? Just as John said, the others could have said the same thing. John, who encapsulates the prophets and the law, because all of it spoke until John, he says this thing. And they all could have said the same thing. He that comes after me was preferred before me. Meaning he was the pleasure of God before I came. He was the one chosen before I come. All I'm doing is saying he's coming. 
pointing you to him. I'm the bridegroom's friend. I'm just here to facilitate the joining of the hands of the bride and the groom. That's it. And when my time's over, then I decrease because his increase brings about my decrease. When the bridegroom's here, the bride doesn't need his friend to hang around. And that can be said of Solomon. That can be said of all of it, of all the testimony, everything that was of the letter. That say we don't read it, we don't study it. No, that means we now have that prophecy made sure. The certainty of it is now present. And that is why the Hebrew letter in, in chapter 12 speaks of now we have come to a mountain that cannot be touched. Why would he say such a thing? Why would he, why would he make that statement? I mean, it, it seems a little weird. You've come to a mountain that can not be touched. The real mountain that all of those other tangible mountains, the mountains that had visibility or merely a testimony of the one to which we have come. You are come to Mount Zion. So let's return to the primary text we're, we're, we're talking about. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse four. I'm just, I'm trying to build up to where, to, to the, to the thing that just floored me. Please don't, don't tune out. Second Corinthians three, verse four. We're going to read this again. This is from the Young's literal translation. Such trust we have through the Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter doth kill, spirit doth make alive. Verse 7, if the ministration of the death in letters engraved in stones came in glory, so that the sons of Israel might not look or, I'm sorry, so that the sons of Israel were not able to look steadfastly to the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, which was being made useless. How shall the administration of the Spirit not be more in glory? For if the administration of the condemnation is glory, notice in the Young's literal how he uses rightly so the definite article. And, you know, the sin, the the condemnation, the death. If the administration of the condemnation is glory, much more doth the administration of the righteousness abound in glory. For also even that which hath been glorious hath not been glorious in this respect because of the superior glory, the exceeding glory of the new, of the spirit. So he brings in these verses, he begins to bring up the face of Moses that shined, the glory of the face of Moses. And it was so such a glory that they could not look upon his face. But it says here that it was a glory that was being made useless or that was going away, fading away, that was uh, transient or transitional. 
It was going to give way to something greater. In fact, the... Uh, let's read it here. Yeah, which glory was to be done away. Which to be done away. And if the administration... Now, he, that that's an important phrase. Which glory which is not even a glory because there's an exceeding glory now on the scene. There's the greater. The truth that gave to that testimonial age validity and glory has now arrived. And in its arrival, it renders the previous thing not glorious at all. That's how exceedingly, abundantly greater this spiritual reality is the end of the law. That's how much greater it is. The, the new covenant, the administration of spirit is superior in every way, better in every way, greater in every way. So when you look at the face of Moses and the glory of his countenance, it passed away. You know, when it was over, it was a transitory uh, glory, meaning it was a testimony that the law itself was a transitory dispensation. And that will contrast with the permanence of the dispensation of the Spirit, which is Christ himself, of the new covenant, that which now gives life and doesn't keep you in a state of death and condemnation. Because then he says, for if that which is done away was glorious, how much more that which remains is glorious? How much more? Much more. He didn't ask the question. Much more that which remains is glorious. Therein we read, we hear this perpetuity, this ongoing, not fading away, not changing. It is a kingdom forever, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting covenant which brings to the souls of men an everlasting life in which righteousness and all spiritual act, all spiritual blessings are bestowed. So while it was glorious, that's what I want us to see. That's what I'm trying to get to. That's the context of these things. He's actually showing what he's declaring. As an able minister of the new covenant, as one whose sufficiency is not in himself, but his sufficiency is God, he can declare the, the greater and surpassing excellence of the new and the spiritual in the light of the presence of Christ himself. He is not having to hold back and say, not quite yet, not yet. It's not yea and nay. He is now able to say, he is here. It is real. It is perfect. It has come. Here we are in the midst of the surpassing excellency of who he is. And he does not back up one step. Which should tell us as ministers of the gospel, that's what we should declare. Not telling them Jesus is everything and then putting an obstacle in their way because I'm going to show you the obstacle we put in their way and it's not one Paul put in their way here. Even in the context of these verses, you can see it. 
But let's get back in, in verse 7. When there was a cover, they, the veil on the face of Moses was to cover the brightness of the glory that was on his countenance. But it was to cover the fact that it was a temporary glory that was not meant to last. That was non-permanent in its nature. And it was veiled so that they could not steadfastly gaze to the goal or the end of that, to its cessation or its doing away. Paul does not in these words take away from the glory of the first. He acknowledges it was glorious, but he also acknowledges the presence and the exceeding nature of that which has come. That which originally lays beneath it as its originating source and says, now that has come. The moon is beautiful, but it's merely a reflection of the glory of the sun. And the day has dawned. The sun has arisen. Walk in the light of the day. So in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 11, I'm going to read verse 11 and go on. For if that which is being made useless, that which is made useless is through glory, much more that which is remaining is in glory. That's the glory we've come to. That's what he's saying. That's the glory in which we live. This is important that I stress this because of what we do with it. Then in verse 12, having then such hope. Is he saying hope for something else? No, he's saying we have the very glory hoped for. We have this hope of the greater glory fulfilled. We have this hope. This is what we have. We possess this hope. And having such a hope, in our possession now, as a fulfilled promise in the person of Christ himself, we use much freedom of speech. We do not hold our tongue. We speak freely. And we are not as Moses, who we just referenced earlier, who was putting a veil upon his own face for the sons of Israel not steadfastly to look to the end of that which was being made useless. But, verse 14, their minds were hardened, calloused. For unto this day, that's the day Paul is writing, this day the same veil at the reading of the old covenant doth remain unwithdrawn. That means the Jew, listen to me, the Jew who was in the, who was in the sanctuary, who was in the, in the place where the reading of the old covenant has happened. Remember Jesus walking in there and reading the prophet Isaiah in the reading of the old covenant, that same veil, the veil that kept them from steadfastly looking to its end, to the end, the goal, the the fulfilling spiritually of that administration is still on their heart. They're still not able to see that the reality 
has come that the spiritual substance of which this testifies is now here. That veil has transitioned from the face of Moses to the heart of the Jew who is reading Moses. Because the King James says that, and reading of Moses. Do you see whose heart the veil is on? This is important because I have wrongly placed a veil where it doesn't belong. I have put a veil on the heart of those who are partakers of the new, who are partakers of the spirit, who are partakers of that which is exceedingly glorious. But in the reading of Moses unto this day, that same veil that was represented on the face of Moses that did not allow them to look to its end, to see something greater beyond that system, it's still there. It hasn't been removed. But look at the end of verse 14. Which veil is done away in Christ? Where are we? Where are we? Again, Please be sure to keep it in the context of the transition and the two distinguished administration and the two distinct people who are in one or the other. You can't have your foot in both. You're in one or you're in the other. Just like you're in Adam or you're in Christ, you're in the flesh, you're in the spirit. There is no middle ground. There's no gray area. Because he's using pronouns that are imported here, guys. I know today's society loves pronouns. So let's, let's consider some pronouns, if we will. In verse 14, their minds are hardened. Their minds were blinded, it says in the King James. For unto this day, the same veil at the reading of the Old Covenant is is still there. They're not seeing beyond Moses. They're not seeing beyond the testimony. They're not seeing beyond the letter that kills. They're not able to observe the spiritual embodiment of the testimony's originating source. They're not able to see that. They're not able to observe that. There is a veil called the law. There is a veil called the testimony. There is a veil still there that keeps them blind to observing the real, genuine intent of the words that they're reading. As Jesus does, sits down after reading Isaiah the spirit of the Lord has become me. I've come to give sight to the blind, to, to uh, liberate the captives from prison and declare the year of Jubilee. And then he sits and says this day, this day, this writing is fulfilled. What's he doing? He's showing them the unveiled 
glory. He's showing them the end that the veil kept them from seeing. He's standing in their midst as the reality that the veil keeps hidden. I hope I can say this because I want you to understand this. I want you to at least scripturally see it and take it before the Lord. Let's turn to Exodus 34. I'm going to show you this. You'll hear my dog snoring in the background. Exodus 34. I want to read these verses where Moses puts the veil on his face because there's something here that we need to address. Exodus 34, verse 29. It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony. Again, they were the tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So he was unaware that his face was actually shining brilliantly. And when Moses and all the chi- and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, or when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh. And he gave them in commandment all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Meaning the whole time when he called them back to him, the whole time that he was speaking with them all, he had a veil on his face. And he had a veil on his face while declaring to them the commandments of all that the Lord had spoken to him in Mount Sinai. Verse 34, but when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, what did he do? He took the veil off. When he was in God's presence, he took a veil off of his face. Why? When he came in the presence of God, he could take it off because it wasn't that great of glory. And until he came out, he had that veil off. And he came out and spoke to the children that, uh, that which he was commanded and the children of Israel saw the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. So, and so when, when Paul's writing about it, he is showing the brightness of Moses' face as emblematic of the glory of that dispensation. But he shows that the glory of it was not really glorious when compared to the superior excellency of the gospel of Christ or Christ himself, the truth of the new covenant. This is from a commentary I want to read to you. Um, I think it's from John Gill, but I'm not, I didn't write the reference. The brightness and excellence of the Mosaic dispensation are eclipsed and absorbed in the tra- in the transcendent brightness or excellence of the gospel or person of Christ. One was the shadow, the other is the substance. One showed sin in its exceeding sinfulness together with the justice and the immaculate purity of God, but in and of itself made no provision for pardon, sanctification, 
The other exhibits Christ, the Lamb of God, typified by all the sacrifices under the law, putting away sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. The apostle further considers the veil on the face of Moses as being emblematic of the metaphorical nature of the different rites and ceremonies of the Mosaic dispensation, each covering some spiritual meaning, meaning all of these ceremonies and rites and ordinances, they were a they covered over the spiritual reality. They were a seen, visible cloaking of a divine reality that was not able to be observed by men. And the Jews did not lift the veil to penetrate the spiritual sense. And they did not look to the end of that commandment, which was to be abolished, but rested in the letter that conferred neither light nor life. Then he goes on, when a Jew at that time, even at Paul's present day, read the law in the synagogue, he put, now to me, this makes sense. This is what the uh, commentary and other ones uh, agreed, that this was what Paul was uh, using loosely as an example, or he was getting that imagery of a veil on their heart from this. When they would go into the synagogue and the law was being read, He put over his head an oblong woolen veil with four tassels at the four corners, which is called a talid. This is very remarkable circumstance as it appears to be the emblem or of the intellectual veil or the veil upon the mind or heart referred to by the apostle, which is still upon their hearts when Moses is being read and which prevents them from looking to the end of that which God designed that God designed to be abrogated and which has been abolished by the introduction of the new covenant. And my notes here was they were content in their blindness to behold the veil of external rites and ceremonies and ritualistic observances and refuse to come to the one who is the end of its temporary usefulness. So let me read once again. Their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened unto this day. The same veil that the reading of the old covenant does remain unwithdrawn, which in Christ is made useless, which veil is done away in Christ, the King James says. But till today, when Moses is read, a veil upon their, their heart doth lie. And whenever they may turn unto the Lord, the veil is taken away. I want you to, again, listen to the pronouns. He's going to change the pronoun in the next few verses. But listen to it. He's speaking of people under a system that veils them from the end of that system, from the spiritual life-giving reality of that system. And he's saying, but when they turn to the Lord, Who do you think would know that better than Paul himself? Whenever they turn to the Lord, the veil, the thing that separates them from the spiritual meaning of it all, the life of which it testified, is removed, is taken away. Why? Because when they turn to the Lord and are brought into Christ, there is no veil there. This is what I want you to see. There is no veil in Christ. Therefore, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, there is no veil we're dealing with here. 
Please consider this carefully. Consider that carefully because we are putting an obstacle in front of people that God has not put an obstacle before. God has not placed a veil in a heart that has now been filled with the fullness and spiritual reality of the new covenant. He has not placed it. He has not let it remain there. When that, when the soul is brought into Christ, that soul is freed from the obstruction of any veil that is upon it. I'm telling you, because the veil in this context is not speaking about just something. It is a reference to the veil on the face of Moses that would not allow them to see the end of the law, the substance of which it spoke, the, the, the spiritual and divine substance that gave it its glory in the first place, but that is now present as the exceeding glory and come as the greater glory, the better thing that it promised and prophesied of. I don't want to be guilty of placing in the hearts or telling someone that is in Christ where all things are new and the the light doth now shine, the true light now shines. I don't want to tell that person, but you still got a veil on your heart and you got to get rid of it. That's not what Paul's saying. I have been repenting in the last few days over this very thing that I have done to people. I have done it to me. I've done it to others. Their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. That veil is still on their heart, untaken away. But when they turn, who is he describing? Again, it's important. Romans 11. I'm going to read a few verses there. Romans 11, chapter 2. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not that what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. <clears throat> but what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for. But the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Listen to these words. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, and eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. Unto this day, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like like Paul's phrase in 2 Corinthians 3. And David said, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Verse 10 let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always and bow down their back always. Sorry. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation, the spiritual, the new, that which is not letter that kills, but the new and spiritual that give life. It was given to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy, to do what? To turn to the Lord so that their blindness 
under the cloak of a veil of a system that keeps them from seeing the end of it, the substance of it, the truth of it, would be removed from the heart and they can know Jesus as its culmination, as their Messiah, present. If the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to the you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, speaking of the Jew, and might save some of them. Go, go to... Go to Romans 10, again, what he says concerning them. The beginning of Romans 9, that was his heart. So that their blindness would be healed, that the veil would be removed. He's talking about blindness under a system that keeps them blind to the truth and the spiritual and the unseen that is greater than the seen. A circumcision of the heart that is greater than a circumcision of the flesh. That's the veil that still remains. That does not that that is that is keeping them from seeing its end, the end of the law himself, so that righteousness could actually be their condition and not just their ongoing, unending pursuit that wears them down under the labor and strain of it. If by any means I may provoke to emulations them which are my flesh, and might save some of them, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? Listen to these words. But life from the dead. That means to bring them from the deadness in sin and the deadness that the law defined them to be in and condemned them in to the life. That only the new covenant, the spiritual reality, the person of Christ himself can bring about. That's their receiving. I receive them that way. They will be brought from death unto life. Just like everybody else, that's their way too. Why? Because Jesus is their way. He is the truth and he's the life. Jesus declares the same blindness to the Jews multiple times, many, many times. Matthew fifteen fourteen, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then Matthew 23, verses 24 through 28 says this, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within They are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter so that the outside of them may be clean also. Do you see this? There's the transition from the externals of the Pharisaical system. The scribes and the Pharisees held to an external cleanness, and that was as deep as the law would allow you to go. But in the midst of that external cleanness, there was still the filthiness, excess that was inside. The need was not to get the outside clean, the exterior of the cup and platter, earthen vessel, but to get the inside clean, and the outside would also be clean as the automatic result. That's what the new covenant does. 
That's what the provision of the life and the glory that exceeds the law brings about. Verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. We've talked about that before, why they whited the sepulcher so the men could touch it on their way to the festivals and wouldn't touch it and be unclean by the standards of the law. And Paul's saying that's what you are. Beautiful on the outside, full of death and uncleanness inside. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And so the blind in this scenario is also those who are internally dead. Why? Moses, the law, the externals, the exterior is what's blinding them to the inward, the spiritual, the complete, the perfect. But if they turn to the Lord, that veil would be removed. They would see the end of the matter. They would see the culmination of the promises. They would see in him is yes and amen, all the promises made. They could see the end himself. They could not only see him, but receive and experience the life-giving nature of him in his present. This speaks to the distinction, again, made of the administration of the letter that kills, keeps those... Uh, while outwardly beautiful, full of deadness. But the spirit, the divine underlying reality, kept hidden by the letter, bestows and imputes the life that is, listen, unobscured, pure, and free from sin and death. And I want you to see the parallel in these verses. The blindness and hardness of the heart described in Second Corinthians 3.14 and then what he's just said about the blindness of those under the law. But he says... That veil is done away in Christ. In Christ, there is no obscurity. There is no obstruction. There is no nothing held back and covered up. And I want you to see that the same word is being done away, as it says it's done away in Christ, is used in a few other places before, not just here, but in a few other verses. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, which glory was to be done away, the glory of the first. Let's refer that to the, to the veil, the glory of the first, the veil was to be done away. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for if that which is done away was glorious, he's speaking of the same thing. The veil, that which is of law, that which is of Moses, is not in Christ. Not in that frame, not in that form, not in that form. It is no longer letter, it is spirit. It is no longer flesh, it is spirit. It is no longer natural, it is divine. It is no longer external, it is internal. That can change the very nature of the heart. That can bring a soul from death to life. And from sin to righteousness. From condemned to holy and without blame before him in love. 
What a change. What a transition. And what I'm telling you is that that transition is reality from the moment the soul turns to the Lord and receives the life of which the law testified. In the context of these chapters, Paul is speaking of the Jew, but the Jew and the Gentile were just as the same dead and had no life. And we'll see in a moment that the whole nations, the whole, all nations were under the veil. Why? Because the law itself was over all Jew and Gentile. Paul will say that in Romans chapter three, but I want you to see it. It's before being born again. The veil was there. It's the state of one who is unregenerated a state of one who is not born of the spirit that gives the life. The same word is also used in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, that they could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, meaning that veil, that system, that administration, all of it is abolished in Christ. They just couldn't see the end of it. That veil kept them from seeing that it was no longer valid, no longer useful. That it was going to be superseded and overcome by the greater, by the better, by the spirit. And this is important because we have to see the subject matter here so that we do not violate it by making it mean or relate to the wrong group or the wrong administration. Again, notice carefully who Paul is describing in verse 14. He's continuing the same thought as verse 15, as he will in verse 15. Paul explicitly describes those under the law who are still holding to its validity, the, the validity of a past administration that has been removed and made useless. F.B. Myers in his commentary says this, they, the Jew, did not understand the inner significance of the Levitical code. And when the law was read, they listened to it without any spiritual insight. They did not realize that that spoke of an inward reality, not demanded external perfection. And what what Paul is saying, if they would just turn to the Lord, they would see that he is the internal perfection that the law was demanding. And it all comes in the life that the new covenant provides, that the spirit provides, the life of Christ within. John Gill in his commentary says this, this confirms the sense of giving of the foregoing verses and shows that not the Israelites only in Moses' time, but the Jews in the times of the gospel had their minds so blinded that they could not behold the glory of the gospel, nor Christ as the end of the law. For unto this day, to that very time, remained the same veil, not the selfsame veil that was on Moses' face, but a veil of blindness and ignorance and darkness upon the hearts of the Jews in the reading of the Old Testament." the books of the Old Testament, which were used to be read in the synagogue every Sabbath day, the true spiritual meaning of which, as they respect Christ and the gospel dispensation, they did not understand, of which darkness the veil on the face of Moses was an emblem and a type, kept them from seeing the end of it. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. 
So what I'm going to do right now is end this. And we'll pick up in our next session. This is probably not the best place to stop, but I don't want to belabor this forever. Guys, here's what I want us to understand. We have done a disservice to the body of Christ. I have done a disservice to the body of Christ, to those who are in Christ, to those who are partakers of the new covenant written in the heart. Listen to that. The new covenant written in the heart. I have done a disservice to those who have partaken of such a gift of the grace of God and are partakers of the life-giving spirit to simultaneously from telling them that all things are complete and Christ is their life, simultaneously declaring to them, constructing in their hearing and in their mind and in their understanding another veil, another obstacle that stands between them and seeing the glory of God. And then the whole time, people, I have heard it and I've heard it and I've heard it forever and a day. How in the world do I get the veil removed? What does it mean to turn the heart? How can I turn my heart? Boom, there's the question. And then I have no answer. No one I've ever heard has an answer. We'll say, well, God will turn your heart. When would that happen? When did he see fit to turn my heart so that I can actually see? Do you see the obstacle, the hindrance that we put in the front of people? What I want you to understand, and we'll get to in the rest of these verses, what we come to, us, those of us who are in Christ, what we have been brought to. That's verse verse 18 starts off that way, right? But we with an open face. You see, and the whole context should should finally interpret the meaning of that. It's not just that I have an open face, that I have an unveiled face. It's that the man I'm looking at, like they looked at Moses to see, and all they saw was a veil. They couldn't look to the end. What we see is an an unveiled, unobstructed face of a perfect man. That's what the soul, when it is born again, it has been filled with the light of his life, it has been given the right to see the kingdom. Am I saying we're not ignorant of the salvation that has come to us? Absolutely not. I'm ignorant right now, sitting in this chair of the salvation in its fullness. But guess what? I am still filled with the fullness. I am not veiled. I am not veiled. And by that I mean this. The veil kept them from beholding, and I would say from receiving and experiencing the end of that administration, the end of the law, the end of that system, the spiritual conclusion. I am not veiled. And by that I mean this, my soul has come to and has received and experienced and is ever experiencing the end himself. 
that which the veil kept them from, kept them even blind to as an internal, as Paul brings it internally, that veil kept them separate from such a glory, such a fullness, such a reality. The soul that has been born of God, the soul that has been has come to the Lord who is the spirit and received the liberty of the sons of God in that, that soul has come to the end that was kept hidden from them. And Paul was admonishing everyone under that system, his brethren, as he says in Romans 9 and 10. Compare these things with Romans 9 and 10. And he was saying to them, if you just come and receive him, you'll receive everything the law kept you from. Because it has to be received in him. You have to come beyond that system. You have to receive the end of that system in the person of Christ himself. I want you to understand that the moment we come into Christ, we come into something that has no veil on it. And our heart is not veiled from it. We are brought into something that exceeds in glory, that provides all things, that fills us with every spiritual blessing, and the, and the spirit of truth is in our hearts that we may know what has been fully bestowed in grace. This is why he can say, we don't speak veiled here. We don't speak with a veil over our face. We speak freely. Why? Because we're not saying yes and no. It has and it hasn't. It's here and it's not. You have it, but you don't quite have it all. You have it, but you don't really know it all. So that's a hindrance. That's an obstacle. There's still this obstacle here. No, he's saying we speak freely and plainly, declaring to you the greater has come. The, the, the permanent remaining covenant has come that exceeds in glory. I do not want to be the one who sets forth before every believer that hears me speak a God that is guilty of allowing or endorsing an obstruction to continue to abide in the soul that he has redeemed and reconciled by his own blood. Again, are we ignorant of the salvation we have come to? Absolutely. When we are brought into Christ, however, we are brought into something that is openly made manifest, that has no veil and obstruction upon it. And we are coming into a realm that is unfamiliar to the natural mind. Absolutely, that is true. And the Spirit of God takes from that moment on, from the moment we come into Christ or are born again, the teaching from the teacher himself begins. That's the process. That's if there's a process at all. It is we come into this full, complete, unveiled glory of God 
into which God by his grace has brought many sons. And the spirit of truth begins from that moment to teach us of the Christ that we have come to the Christ who has made unto us all things. And we begin to see by the light of the knowledge of that glory that we abide in, that glory that is unobstructed and unhindered, we begin to see the length and the breadth, the depth, the full measure of the love and kindness of God that has gifted us with such a wonderful salvation. And our souls begin to grow in the understanding of him who is made unto us all, who is our life. That is the work of the Spirit in a soul that is born from above, from a soul that has been brought from condemned underneath the law, whether Jew or Gentile, to now redeemed and dead to the law. Why? Because you're now dead to the sin that the law condemned. See, that's the whole thing the, the veil was representative of. That's what the veil was about. It, it was a metaphorical picture of, a, of the system and administration of death and condemnation that has hindered the view and the heart and the mind of those under it to its true intended conclusion to its spiritual amen and Paul is saying that if they would just turn unto the Lord who is the spirit then that spirit would bring liberty to that soul liberty from that veil liberty from the death and the sin that that veil kept them under they would be liberated out of the prison of such a condition they would be liberated from the externalities of a system that do not or that does not actually provide any internal transition or change. And God would bring about, this is verse 18, the change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he would bring about the change from one glory that was non-glorious to the glory of the greater spiritual substance, Christ himself, the person of the new covenant. That is what I'm attempting to say in somewhat of a nutshell. I'm not saying we don't need to see the Lord. I'm not saying our hearts does not need to be flooded with the light of God. I'm not saying that we are not ignorant and have a perspective that is totally contrary to the perspective of God. What I'm saying is to, to ascribe this veil that Paul is addressing here to the believer who has come to be found in Christ is not appropriate. And I pray that you'll take this before the Lord. And whatever you hear from the Lord, fine with me.
but I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your hearing me out. And we'll end this and we'll pick up in the next session with this particular second half of this lesson. Thank you so much. Until next time. Love you. Amen. Thank you.